Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons. And I'm Anna Marie Jones. Every alternate week, we conduct a question and answer episode based on the prior week's podcast. Today, we're talking about a subject that is incredibly important agency, advocacy, and the pain that is visited on individuals with disabilities sometimes even by those who claim to be allies. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, please stop now, go back and listen. The episode is called Developmental Disabilities, Exploring the Importance of Agency and Advocacy. Yeah, Darylise, I have to confess that last week's episode really had me thinking a lot, not only about our professional work, but also about my personal life and parenting. I'm glad you're sharing that, Anna Marie. And I know that you and I talked before we even started recording and that we've been talking about this a lot, but I'm wondering if you can tell listeners why this topic is so personally significant for you. Sure, I'd be honored to. I'm going to start by just letting everyone know that I have three children who are distinctly different when it comes to their learning styles, right? So Uh, My first is Luca, who's 14. He's in eighth grade. And granted, he's older and pretty mature, but he's a very self-motivated and organized learner. Um, Information, he's lucky it comes easy to him to process. And he's a deliberate processor, which means he regulates the information to fit his needs as he's learning. He asks a lot of questions. He gets things done precisely. You know, it's a pretty cool skill that he's pretty much honed in on after several years of school, right? Yeah. Plus, he's a very concrete black and white thinker. So like, it's so funny, teachers all throughout the years would say, but he doesn't really inference. And I'm like, well, he's a black and white thinker. His dad's the same. Like, it's just, I think, become part of his personality. Okay. And then there's Lorelai, who is 11 and in fifth grade. And she is a typical learner, very bright, She processes quickly. However, she wants everything to be easy. So we're working with her on slowing down and asking for help when she has questions and not just glossing over stumbling blocks. We are also working with her on her executive functioning skills to help her manage short versus long-term school projects and create better study habits. But like I said, she works quickly and she's becoming more efficient. And then we have Kieran. (laughs) Every kid's different, like even though they come from the same litter. He's our creative, abstract thinker who, I mean, he sees things others don't because he takes more time to look around and process. And I have so many cool examples of that that maybe I can share later. But, you know, we noticed early on that he wasn't able to fully adapt to the normative teaching styles that are taught in public school and keep up with the pace. So last year around this time, I think you might remember me talking about it incessantly. I totally remember you talking about it and I didn't feel like it was incessant at all, but I felt really grateful to be able to talk to you throughout that process. Yeah, well, thank you. You're a very good friend. Well, anyway, he was tested for and received an IEP, which is a school-issued individualized educational plan. And he was diagnosed in his private testing with mild dyspraxia. Yeah. And what can you say a little bit about what that is? Yeah, sure. Dyspraxia covers a lot of different things, but 
Basically, for him, he has auditory and visual processing delays, and that affects the rate and speed at which he learns, and it also affects his fine and gross motor skills to a certain extent. Yeah. But I have to say that the um, IEP has changed his life for the better. I'm so glad that you shared that. Yeah. And, you know, as we were saying, I remember when Kieran was being tested initially and What I remember most about that time was how stressful it was for you because the school wasn't testing him and you had to get private testing. And But then when your family had answers and when Kieran got the IEP, you know, he could finally begin learning in a way that was really suited to his needs and he could start to feel empowered. Yes, it totally has empowered him. And it's just made a world of a difference. And it also makes me think of what David Clisby said in this episode. You know, it's really important for the child to have agency and for there to be people who will advocate for them if they can't advocate for themselves yet. And I'd like to share a little bit more of our family story in hopes that it might help someone listening, if that's okay. I would love that. And I'm sure our listeners would too. All right. Well, I had to be very persistent to get answers, especially because Kieran's learning differences were not glaring. And I'm sure a lot of parents have come to the point where they're like, there's something wrong, but I'm not sure what it is. And the teachers back that up, not sure what it is. But so Kieran now is in second grade, but I'll never forget when he was in preschool and his teacher, Mrs. Bolt, said she noticed it took Kieran a much longer time to gather his thoughts and articulate them. At that point, I wasn't thinking that it was a big deal. I was thinking, oh my gosh, he's my baby. He's you know later with walking and talking than his brother and sister are, but no big deal. And I thought it was just part of his personality. But then when he moved on to public school, because that was a private kindergarten, he moved on to public school for kindergarten and first grade. And the teachers in both kindergarten and first grade noticed he needed to hear directions more than once before he understood what to do. And it was the same thing at home. I would have to give him directions several times. And the strategy was he would repeat back to me what I said. So for instance, I would say, Kieran, it's time to take a bath. And he would pretty much ignore me and continue doing what he was doing. 30 seconds later, I'd say, Kieran, it's time to take a bath. Once again, no response. (laughs) 30 seconds later, Kieran, what is it that mommy asked you to do? What is it time to do? And then he would finally say, it's time to take a bath, mommy. And he would just head to the bathroom. But if I were to like ask him once or twice to do something without him repeating it back, pretty much, he would have a meltdown. So this became our way of getting around the meltdowns and his frustration. He just needed time to process and transition in his own speed, basically. So we were kind of figuring that all out. And then we decided to have him privately tested just because the teachers were perplexed. His standardized testing in school showed that he did need help. So he was a bit below average for math and reading. So he did get Title I math and reading support. And those specialists noticed when they were working with him that sometimes he was on and sometimes he was off in terms of what he knew and could recall. So that was what was perplexing to them. They would say that sometimes it seemed like he had many answers and sometimes he had none. So these were the red flags that still weren't evidence enough for the school to test him. So that's when Chris and I decided to have him tested privately. 
Yeah, wait, I want to just stop you because I really think it's important to point out to our listeners that you and your husband had to pay out of pocket for this testing. And I'm sure that there are a lot of families who don't have those financial resources and don't have that ability and their children aren't being taught in a way that matches their learning styles, but they might not have the ability to do anything about that. Yes, exactly. And, you know, fortunately, we were able to have him privately tested. And then, yeah, so we did have to pay out of pocket. And the public schools will do the testing if they see evidence enough to do it. So like, Kieran was already receiving the title one, they were already giving us assistance, but it wasn't enough. And there are a lot of children who still can fall between the cracks, if title one isn't meeting their needs. And so that's kind of where Kieran was fitting into. And parents have to be advocates and they have to push and push and really document everything and have multiple meetings upon multiple meetings with the administration to get things done. So like in order to save time and get him that IEP sooner, we decided to have him privately tested, paid out of pocket for that. And then we brought that test to the school and they're like, "Uh uh-huh, okay, now we see a reason to test him. Not everyone needs to pay privately, but it definitely takes a longer time to build a case if you're going to just have the public school do it. Does that make any sense? It makes total sense. And for me, it brings up like, oh my gosh, but how many kids don't actually have parents to advocate for them? Or how many kids in the foster system, you know, might be slipping through the cracks in these ways? So, I mean, I'm just so glad that you're able to kind of share this experience with people, because I think that hopefully some people listening might, you know, it might clue them into maybe some things. And I know, you know, you've said that the IEP has really helped because now it's changed the way that Kieran is taught. And so he's taught in a way that allows him to not only hear the lesson, but also retain it and be able to repeat it. And he feels like a more skilled learner now. Absolutely. And he is a skilled learner. He's such a smart kid, but not everyone learns the same way. And so he's developing the tools and learning what the tools are around him to be an empowered, informed, and successful learner. But going back to his IEP, so the school psychologist did test him afterwards and definitely agreed that he had auditory and visual processing delays, which categorically belongs to generalized dyspraxia. But just to let people listening know, dyspraxia also affects fine and gross motor skills. So kids with dyspraxia are often labeled as clumsy. And some telltale signs is that they might spill things a lot or fall down a lot or bump into things because they aren't as aware of how their bodies relate to the spaces that they're filling, right? So um, they simply lack the finesse of movement because of processing delays. Um, So Kieran doesn't get that addressed in school. He doesn't have an occupational therapist that he works with in school. We decided to deal with that by just having him participate in sports like soccer and karate and swimming that will help him with his body movement and learning how he functions in space. But like I said, Kieran's dyspraxia is mild. And with all of the tools we have in place for him now, we've noticed leaps and bounds of improvement in just a year. And as you mentioned, Darylise, not every parent has resources to privately test or to hone in on the nuanced learning differences early on. Fortunately, I have a background in teaching and our family has 
the resources to get care and that support. But so I, I do worry about the families that don't have that. And that's why I'm a proponent of government funded early intervention programs for infants and toddlers. So that's part of the Individuals with Disabilities Act or IDEA, which you've mentioned in the story. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the disparity in access to resources is a huge problem. And I'd love to talk more about that. Me too. I think that's a really great lead into my first question, actually. Darylise, could you share with listeners what you've learned about government-funded early education and intervention programs like IDEA? Yeah. So one thing that I wasn't aware of, Anna Marie, and I have to say I wasn't aware of a whole lot when I started researching this and learning more, but something that really stood out to me as problematic and also highly confusing is that IDEA is a government act and the federal government awards grants to various state and local initiatives to support early intervention services, right? For toddlers and infants and preschool children and children and youth with disabilities in general. And so the government is sort of like at the helm of many of these initiatives. And so I'd always assumed that IDEA would be federally regulated and that there would be standards maybe that were nationwide. But what I found out as I started delving more and more into this is that different states deal with these issues very differently. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because it's led to a ton of disparity in terms of the education that students who maybe have different learning styles or have disabilities have access to simply based on geography. So where someone lives determines the quality of their education. And I know that that's true for typical learners as well, but I think it becomes all the more glaring when a student learns in a way that is not typical. And so, yeah, just based on the school system that a student is in, IDEA, like what that brings them in terms of resources and ability to learn in a way that suits their processing and just how that student is treated and unfolded into the larger student population, like all of those things vary so much based on geography. And it's staggering to me. And I think that It's not just true for children. I've been, you know, looking into this more and more. And depending on where a person with a disability lives, the quality of life is markedly different. So, for example, Arizona is considered a great state in terms of access, inclusion and education. Like all the resources came back and we're like, yeah, like Arizona is the place to live. If you or someone in your family has a disability or maybe a a difference in learning, just the state does so well, performs so well according to so many different markers. And just, you know, I'll give an example that Arkansas, and there are many, there are many, many states that do not do a a good job, but Arkansas consistently performs very poorly on various disability ranking criteria. And that's just the first one that popped into my head. But again, like for me, the biggest eye opener is that although these guidelines and laws are federally determined, because they're state administered, they're not at all equal. And I think that's a huge problem. I'm not sure how to solve it, but I don't think it's fair that, let's say, you know, a family living in Arkansas who has a child who learns differently or has different needs, their child is not going to get the education that another child born to a different family who maybe has the same exact 
style of learning might get in Arizona and same thing for like jobs and access and, you know, accessibility, like there's just so many things. It's so, so different depending on geography. And I don't think that that should be the case. Yeah, I agree. That is super eye-opening. I was not aware of that either. There definitely should be more equity throughout the country for everyone when it comes to learning. Yeah. Well, Darlise, uh, I have another question for you. And since we've been pretty pragmatic so far, when it comes to neurodiversity, I was wondering if we could talk about the positive qualities of people in neurodiverse communities. Can you share any accomplishments of people you've interviewed for this episode? And is there a well-known person that you can think of that fits into the neurodiverse rather than neurotypical community that has done something great? Oh my gosh, absolutely. So I think it's important to make it clear that, you know, no community is a monolith and that individual members of any community are going to have unique gifts and talents. But there are so, so many examples of incredible thinkers who might not fit into the category of typical learners, but have done just incredible things. I'll start with this episode's interviewees, Steve Mallon and Marta Russick. So in addition to being a dad and a husband and an architect and having an innovative way of thinking and out-of-the-box ideas, Steve is a talented vocalist, and he's a member of a phenomenal choral singing group. And it's worth noting that because of the way that he was treated throughout his childhood and because of the bullying that he suffered, Steve had a fear of using his voice, right? Like he had a fear of speaking up. And so in order to become a singer and to let himself shine in that way, he had to overcome his fear of using his voice. But now he does that and he's so talented. I think we should put a link. There's a choral performance of his, a virtual performance, so everyone can see it. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes so that listeners can see him and hear him sing along with his choral group. But that's just one accomplishment of many. And then there's Marta Russick, who has written and spoken as an advocate for autism. And um, she's a digital storyteller and a nonprofit networker. And just an incredibly accomplished human being. And her website is www.martarusick.com, M-A-R-T-A-R-U-S-E-K.com. And if you're listening to this, you can go there and we'll put a link to that in the show notes too, but you can go there and find links to her writing and her other work. And actually one of my favorite pieces by Marta is Autism Found Me and Then I Found My Voice. I loved that article that she wrote. I have to take a look at that too. Yeah. And also, Anna Marie, so you had asked too about like just some widely recognized people that might have be non-typical learners or experienced disabilities. And just two Mm -hmm. people that stand out to me are of many, 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 many are James Earl Jones, who actually had a speech problem for much of his childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's widely known for his famous. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, He's famous for his voice, you know? So James Earl Jones stands out to me and Albert Einstein is someone who was a non-typical learner and he did amazing things in the world. So brilliant. We wouldn't have half the things we had if it weren't for Einstein. (laughs) Seriously. Yeah. And Anna Marie, I almost forgot to ask you about this, but I know earlier you said that you had many examples of the way 
that Kieran's style of thinking and learning is a gift and an asset. And so I would just love if you would give an example of that. Sure. One of my favorite stories of Kieran thinking out of the box differently than we do or paying attention to things differently um, is when I had a headache. Okay, so I went to see my doctor because I had a, a migraine and I took Kieran with me. He must have been around five at that time. My doctor was working out of a trailer behind offices that were being remodeled. Yeah, I guess like uh, the backstory is that the power because of the remodeling would often go out due to the construction. Yeah. Anyway, we were talking and my doctor shut the light in the room so that it would help me alleviate the headache since light is a trigger. And a few minutes later, she rolled over to the computer to enter some notes and realized that the computer's power was out. So she apologized and immediately left the room to go get help. She was like, oh, gosh, this is happening again because of construction. But when she left the room, Kieran said to me, mommy, the computer is attached to the light or something like that. Right. So um, when she came back into the room, I told her what Kieran had said. And she was like, huh, I didn't think of that. So Kieran got excited because he was getting, you know, like confirmation that he might be right. And he ran over to the light to try to flick it up, but he was too little. (laughs) He was like jumping up trying to reach the light. Uh, So she reached over and turned it on for him. And sure enough, voila, the computer light came back on. So she knew back then that Kieran was neurodiverse or a non-typical learner because we would talk about it. And it was around the time that I was starting to think about getting him tested So she smiled and gave me that all-knowing, nonverbal gesture saying, see, thinking differently is not an issue. It's a gift. Like that's kind of the message I got from her. So yeah, it was just so cool because there was a small indicator light on the power strip and also a really tiny red light at the bottom of the computer. And so he must have been paying attention to that and saw it go off when she turned off the light. That's like, I'm staggered by that story because I still to this day don't think I would have made that connection if I were, you know, at my age in that room. I wouldn't have figured that out. Yeah. I mean, there are so many stories and I'll share one more. One morning I was at the bus stop with the kids and a few of the neighborhood kids and we were all just like talking and like horsing around and Kira noticed the faintest amount of steam coming from a tree. You know, it was a really cool fall morning and maybe trees were still warm. I I don't know how that worked, but (laughs) he said out loud to all of us as we're like just gabbing away and being silly. He's like, the tree over there is breathing. And we're like, what? (laughs) I mean, like, who says that a tree is breathing? Like, so anyway, motioned us to move closer to the tree so we could see what he meant. And when we got closer to the tree, we were all like, wow, that's so cool. We saw the steam like very lightly coming off the tree. And he noticed this from standing way back and we we couldn't see it at all. And then we all moved closer and we we could see what he meant. But through this boy, I totally see such wonderment and beauty in thinking and processing slowly. Yeah, I love that. And that's one of the reasons I love visiting you is like, you know, I mean, all your kids are so great. And it's so wonderful to spend time with your family and like, you know, just, but it's always so amazing to me because Kieran just notices the coolest things and just asks so many inspiring questions. And you mentioned that in a standard classroom, 
non-typical learners enrich the learning experience for neurotypical kids and their teachers. So can you talk about how that is? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just not sure that I can like fully convey just how true that is or how much it does make a difference, but I'll just sort of give a little bit of info and maybe it can inspire people to think about how many ways this might change uh, the way that students learn and teachers teach. So we've all heard, right, that like depending on what source you go to, there are multiple different learning styles. Some people say four different learning styles or seven or eight, but that's kind of like neither here nor there. It's widely agreed on that there are different ways that people learn and that there are different types of intelligence, right? And so people are learning and thinking in different ways. But let's say that teachers only teach to one type of intelligence or one type of learning style. So for example, logical or mathematic, right? So teachers are just sort of teaching in a very logical point A leads to B leads to C progression and it's mathematic and everything adds up, right? Well, then that's only really teaching students to learn in that one way. And it's only giving them experience in, you know, this specific set of skills. But if a teacher expands their realm of teaching to include kinetic learning, right, like and like physical learning and touch-based learning and maybe musical and linguistic and visual and social, et cetera, like all these different ways of relating information and disseminating information and engaging with concepts, the more that those teachers are invited to develop their methodology and develop innovative ways of teaching information, but it also really stretches students as well to come at things from a number of different angles. And this gets to be so so helpful. And it's helpful not just in the classroom, but it becomes a lifelong exercise in being able to innovate and stretch your brain to think in ways that might not be your natural go-to. And I think that's something that we didn't really touch on in the episode, but neurodiverse students or people who maybe think in ways that are outside the quote unquote norm, you know, whatever that means, they're constantly being asked to think in a way that doesn't really suit their learning style, right? And so they're constantly kind of like developing adaptations and and ways of engaging in the world um, in a way that might not necessarily come naturally. And I think that if typical learners are invited to do the same thing, it just makes everybody a better learner and more capable of empathy and engaging with people in ways that carry on far beyond the classrooms. I think it's important to look at just how learning styles and and differences in in the ways that people filter and process, like really, I mean, those are something that we have to engage with for our our entire lives. And so, you know, just for example, Anna-Marie, let's use you and me and our partnership. So we, we have this partnership and I'm, I would say, probably a solitary learner and a verbal and auditory learner. But I've noticed that you tend to be more social and more logical, right? And so like you do well with brainstorming and thinking something through from beginning to end and kind of like step by step. And I tend to be maybe more like abstract, like we just learn differently, right? And I know that sometimes you've had to 
cater your approach to me by sending me messages or emails that I can go through like on my own time and learn in my solitary way and research. And I've had to learn how to like brainstorm with you and also how to present things because you're far more logical than me. But like, so, okay, how do I, I present things? more like- logical. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, yeah. well, and logical is like a learning style too. So it means like you do well with step-by-step information yeah. and thinking things through in that way. And I think that's what Melissa Swee was talking about when she said that the skills that come from being amidst different learning styles are important professionally. So Anna Marie, I have a question for you. Stacey Kunitz and Melissa Swee both spoke about how for children with disabilities or for non-typical learners, or I guess just young people in general, right? Like, so just anyone. The goal is to find a way to navigate life with the least amount of scaffolding and to become one's own advocate. But I mean, I don't have kids and I'm just curious as a parent, how do you deal with that? Because I'm sure you want to step in and be the advocate and speak up for all your kids, but also want to empower them to use their voices. And so I'm just curious, Karen's only in second grade now, but I'd imagine that this issue of when do you become the advocate and when do you kind of like let him advocate for himself, like it's going to be a lifelong thing. So how do you deal with that? Well, you know, I'm learning as I go because this is all new to us. And yes, I think that there is a scaffolding being built as we speak. And right now we're at the point where we're teaching him how to advocate for himself. So he's developing his own agency and he's learning his skill sets and tools around him. And so, you know, I I just believe that, first of all, honesty is the best policy when it comes to teaching children about their differences. And I talk with Kieran all the time about how we all learn differently. And truth be told, my husband and I are both admittedly slow processors. I talk openly about this with him all the time. You know, I just want him to know that like we're kind of pretty much cut from the same cloth. And both Chris and I had to work a little harder to do well in school when it came to, well, I guess at that point in time, there wasn't much learning support for kids like us because we weren't glaringly, we didn't glaringly have an issue. So For instance, some of my symptoms are that I read slowly and I can't orate as smoothly off the cusp as I can write. My brain just doesn't work like that. And unfortunately, (laughs) that has only gotten worse with age. So if I'm stumbling a lot while I talk now, that's why. But (laughs) I mean, it's the truth. It's the God-given truth. So, But Kieran is becoming more aware of what his educational stumbling blocks are. And like I said, he's learning what the tools are around him to manage them. So for instance, he's aware that he has an IEP and that it gives him untimed tests, that he's allowed to use manipulatives for math. I mean, quite honestly, at this age, all kids are, but he can also have directions read to him multiple times during a test. And he does ask, like if he isn't certain that he got it the first time, he'll ask for it to be read to him again. So that's like really good to know that he's using his agency in that way. He's becoming more comfortable with asking for help. And we've just noticed that his confidence has skyrocketed and his skill sets are growing and he's excited to come home and show us how he is solving math problems. And I thought this was pretty neat. Just the other morning, Lorelai was getting some work done last minute 
And she just shouted out to me, hey, mom, what's a noun? Can you just remind me again what a noun is? And she's in fifth grade. And Kieran just, before I could answer, he was like, a noun's a person, place, or thing. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so obviously, there are things that are clicking and jiving with him. And he's becoming more confident and speaking up and speaking out. So these are like instances that are victories for non-typical learners. And as a mom, it brings on the happy tears. I think that's really important. And thank you so much for sharing this, both about Kieran and the things that you've gone through as a parent, but also about you and Chris and the ways in which you process, because I think it's really important for more people to speak about, you know, like whether it be a personal way of learning in a way that might be non-typical or processing in a way that's non-typical or with their children, because I think that the more we can shine light on this, the more it can really help and support people who might benefit from, from hearing about this and find a sense of community or a sense of like, oh, wow, you know, I'm not alone. And I know that you and I spoke to a number of parents offline and even just in the course of gathering people to talk about this topic, it was so interesting to me that many people just seemed very reluctant to share. Yes. And I do get the reluctance. It could be very emotional for parents to share about their experiences with neurodiversity, especially when it comes to their children who they want to protect. And, you know, controlling the narrative is done out of love, like I said, protection and preservation, whether it's preservation for themselves, their child, their family. But on the other hand, the less we share, I feel the more stigmatized non-typical learners become and the less innovation and diversity we have in education, right? So, you know, let's not forget that people who learn and think differently are typically those on the forefront of innovation and have positively shaped our world. Right. Absolutely. Because you have to think outside of what is, right, in order to create what isn't yet (laughs) or what could be. And they're doing that not because they want to, but they're kind of like in that box of not having a choice or, you know, I don't want to say box, but like they're in a space of not having a choice because that's just how their mind works. So, you know, and I view Kieran as that type of thinker and my husband is for sure. He and Kieran don't fit into the normative ways of learning. And my husband is a pretty brilliant guy, but he talks all the time about as a kid, having to work extra hard to keep up and get straight A's because that was important to him. And he talks about how he would constantly compare himself to other kids who were in his AP classes who would just not have to study as hard and he would get so frustrated. But as a result of him learning to work hard and remain tenacious, he has become very accomplished in his field. Yeah, that's so great. And he's a surgeon, right? Remind me what is Yeah, doing? yeah. He's, he's a surgeon. He's a professor. So he teaches other people to become surgeons. And he admittedly, you know, once again, like me, we're not smooth orators. So in order for him to give a presentation, he has to practice time and time again, whereas some of his colleagues can just get up there and speak off the cusp and they sound brilliant. And like, even though they're they're all brilliant, he's at the same level as them. He just has to like train his brain to orate, to get the message out clear and concisely. So these are just nuanced learning styles and ways of being, and it's okay, but we have to figure it out. 
Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of my biggest takeaways from this episode was when Steve Mallon said that, and I'm paraphrasing here, so excuse, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but essentially he said that when you try to get everyone to think and behave in the same normative ways and to fit into these narrow boxes, that you start cutting off a huge amount of human potential. And so I think what you're really talking about, Anna Marie, is seeing the human potential that comes with different ways of thinking and learning. And for me, that was just like a huge takeaway from this episode. Yeah, definitely. I could not agree with that more. I'm curious about listener takeaways and questions as well. So if you're listening to this and have a reflection or a question, please call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Or you can send us a message through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. You know, Anna Marie, something I really want podcast listeners to know about is an offer from our Q&A episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. COVID cases are at an all-time high, and the stress of that is making a lot of us want to be healthier and feel like we're taking steps to increase our immunity. I know I started taking supplements pretty religiously back in March at the start of all of this, and I get all of my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 20% off on all of their products. In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my three favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com pages slash diversity. Or you can simply peruse their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code diversity to receive your 20% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 20% off. Yeah, Darylise, I've been loving their supplements. And you know, so I'm taking the Supreme Greens and the joint support. And I really feel like I feel a difference. That's awesome. And you know, I'm not surprised because their products really work. So Darylise, let's dive into our listener questions. First, I'll read an email from Casey from Massachusetts. Casey writes, Hi, Darylise. Thank you for the podcast and your books. You're helping me to gain a better understanding of these very important issues. Can you talk more about the concept of, quote, it's not about us without us? How does that fit in with advocacy and allyship and why do you feel it's so important? And then Casey wrote in another email a few minutes later, one other thought. You've made me realize that by not being part of the solution, I am part of the problem. Thank you for the gift of awareness. Wow, Casey, thank you so much for that gift to me and to your listeners. First off, you're absolutely right. By not being part of the solution, we do become part of the problem. And I don't say that, and I'm sure you didn't say that either, to carry a sense of shame, but more like to empower people to know that we actually can make a difference and we can step out of that problem and into the solution. And I really think that your last comment, your second email fits in with your question a lot, which is that hopelessness and helplessness are incredibly painful to the human psyche. It is so hard to feel like there is nothing that we can do for ourselves. And I think we all crave 
a way of feeling like we matter and a way of feeling like we can work towards our goals and live a meaningful life. And many of us require some scaffolding to be able to do that. And that scaffolding can be different depending on various mental, emotional, and physical requirements. And I know in later episodes, I'll speak pretty candidly about some of the mental and emotional scaffolding that I've needed throughout my life and continue to need. And I think Anna Marie very bravely spoke about some of the scaffolding that she uses in this episode. And so all of that said, just because a person has certain needs that doesn't divest them or shouldn't divest them of agency. So the statement, it's not about us without us is a really powerful advocacy statement that reminds us that members of a certain community, and this is a statement that's often said in the autism community, but it really speaks to the larger issue that individuals are best equipped to give voice to their own needs. And it's very disempowering to think that outsiders know more about a community than its own members. And so I think that to the point about allyship, allyship is essential. It's essential in the autism community, it's essential for individuals with disabilities, it's essential for any community, you know, having allyship around any issue is going to bring that issue more to the forefront, it's going to get more resources, it's going to get more support in that way. But I think we really want to be careful if we're not members of a certain community, that if we're wanting to be allies, and we're wanting to support people, that we're supporting them in their goals and objectives rather than pushing our own agendas. And I think, you know, that can be the hardest, to be honest, when it comes to young people with disabilities, because caregivers are often tempted to, I think, see their children as these precious little people who they want to protect. And and I think parents should protect their children, but I also think that it can be really harmful when we strip agency from people at any age and stage of life. Oh my gosh, Darylise, you're so right. I mean, kids do crave a mixture of dependence, independence, and interdependence. And as tempting as it is to want to wrap them up in bubble wrap and keep them safe, I mean, as a parent, I want to do that. I just think it's ultimately disempowering and could be a disservice. Let's go to our next question. Hi there. Um, I have a question. What where did the uh, term neurodiversity come from? And can you give an explanation exactly what the definition is? Thank you so much. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you so much for asking that. In the late 1990s, Judy Singer, a sociologist who is on the autism spectrum, coined the word neurodiversity as a way of describing ways of thinking and learning as variations as opposed to impairments or disorders. Up until that point in the late 1990s, neurological diversity was framed as a pathological problem rather than being recognized and respected as a social category like gender or ethnicity or sexual orientation or disability status, right? And so neurodiversity activists reject the idea that autism or any other diverse style of learning or thinking should be quote unquote cured And they advocate instead for celebrating various forms of communication and self-expression and thinking. Everybody thinks differently, and not just because of differences in culture or life experience, but because our brains are wired to work differently. And I see that as just beautiful evidence of what's available and possible. And I know Anna Marie does as well, and hopefully our listeners 
do. And so I think the term neurodiversity is really just meant to emphasize the beauty that comes from different ways of thinking and moving about in the world. Amen to all of the above, Darylise. <laughs> well, we have another question from a listener in PA. Hi, Darylise. This is Dougie Forlano calling from PA. I want to know more about ADA versus IDEA. Can you just explain why one is more supportive than the other? I'm not clear on the difference. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Dougie, I'm so glad you asked that question. We touched on this a little in the episode, but I definitely think it needs a more comprehensive explanation. So you referred to IDEA and ADA. For anyone who's not familiar with those acronyms, IDEA stands for the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and ADA stands for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And both acts were passed in 1990. And the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities in several areas, including employment, transportation, public accommodations, communication, and access to state and local government programs and services. And the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, guarantees a free, appropriate public education for all in the least restrictive environment. So those are what the acts are, but then what does this mean, right, practically? And I think that gets to the heart of your question, Debbie. The ADA is concerned with protecting the rights of adults with disabilities. So this act really is aimed at ensuring that adults with disabilities can be employed, that they have rights to transportation, public accommodation, telecommunications, and, and other provisions. It's really concerned with how do adults function in society? Are they being granted access? And those kinds of things. And IDEA is aimed at protecting the rights of children with disabilities. So I think that's one fundamental difference is sort of the population that these various acts serve. But under IDEA, it ensures that children with disabilities, and I said this before, but I think it bears repeating, they have a free public education in the least restrictive environment. It's supposed to be free, appropriate, and public in the least restrictive environment. What this is designed to do is to provide that scaffolding um, that we've talked about a little bit for children so that as they grow up, they're acquiring the skills to become employed in the future and acquiring the skills to go on to lead a meaningful and purposeful life in accordance with their goals and their desires. And, and so I think Stacey Kunitz really said it well in her interview that the ADA assures that if you're an individual with a disability, your employer has to make reasonable accommodations for you, but nothing says that that employer has to hire you. So ADA it's like, well, once you get access, it ensures that you're treated fairly and properly in a number of situations. But IDEA, I think, is more supportive because public education is a right within this country. And so even though, as I said a little earlier, there are considerable disparities as to the quality of that education, especially if you're a child with a disability, if you're in the school system, you're entitled to support. And so I think every child is guaranteed protection under IDEA, whether or not they receive that protection 
is there are huge flaws in the system. But that said, as an adult, you're entitled to protection from discrimination, but that's not the same as full participatory inclusion. And so I think that's why like the whole idea of IDEA and ADA, a lot of people point to that and feel as if entry into adulthood takes away a lot of vital participation and support for individuals with disabilities. And I think it's really important to recognize that and to create better social structures to promote and support inclusion and advocacy at every age and stage of life so that it doesn't feel like once children grow up, they're suddenly left without that critical scaffolding and without that ability to live the lives that they deserve to live. Yes, I think it's so important to be aware that advocacy for children and adults needs to be included in very meaningful ways. So, Darlies, here's a great question from Emily in PA. Hi, my name is Emily, and I am a parent of three children, and I have been wondering about the difference between saying autistic person or um, a person with autism. I know there are questions about preference and could you just explain the differences between those two labels, I guess? So do you say this person has autism or do you say this is an autistic person? Thank you. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for that question. And I'm happy to hear that you're doing the work to learn about these things. And hopefully you'll bring this information to your three children, because I think the earlier we can learn these things, the better. And yeah, this is a great question. And part of the reason that it's such a great question is because it stumped me. I'll just let the cat out of the bag now that I don't actually have an answer, but I can give you the information and then you can make the decision and listeners can make the decision as to what sort of they want to do as pertains to your question about whether to say autistic person or a person with autism or disabled person or person with disabilities. And so I'll just say that for me, I was taught by various editors, both within journalism and I do book writing. And so within that space, that the proper language is to say individual with autism or, you know, in a broader context, individual with disability and to use person first language. So what I mean by person first language is that whether it be autism or a disability, that's seen as an element of a person's identity, but not necessarily the defining element of a person's identity. So you sort of start with the individual and then say, you know, autism. So my initial reflex when you sent in your question, when I listened to it was that you should say person with autism or person with a disability. But then I started doing some research and actually it seems like there's a lot of very intense debate going on right now around this issue. And many people advocate for the language to say autistic person or disabled person, because the argument here is that it's an essential element of that person's identity in the same way as race or gender. So like, for example, I say I'm a biracial woman and I don't say I'm a person with a female gender or I'm a person with a biracial race, right? Which feels awkward and unwieldy and also might not be true to my experience because I think there's a difference between saying I'm a woman and I'm a person with a female gender or I'm a person who is a woman, right? Like that sort of 
flies in the face of how I've lived. And same thing with biracial. It's like important to own that and own it first and like lead with that. So the answer to your question is that there's not a uniform answer yet. And uh, some communities are saying like we should say individual with autism and other communities are saying we should say autistic person. And so although the verdict is still out, I'm personally always a proponent of letting people make that determination for themselves. So in the same way that you might ask a person their desired pronoun and not just assume, if there's someone in your life who has a disability or someone in your life who has autism and you have a close enough relationship with that person that you can ask them, I would ask them, you know, how they prefer to be referred to. And I think that goes to the notion and also to Casey's question earlier of not stripping individuals of agency. And at the same time, I also recognize that it's a personal preference. So one person might say that they prefer to be referred to as disabled or autistic, and another might say that they prefer to be referred to as a person with a disability. And just because one person feels one way doesn't mean that we can then assume that someone else is going to feel the same, someone else within that same community. So I think whatever label best captures a particular element of a person's identity and experience kind of belongs to that person. And so, yeah, like, I'm sure that was not at all helpful, because I just answered your question with the exact same question. But I think it's a really, really wonderful question that you asked, Emily. And I think that it gets at the deeper issue, which is that there is often no one answer to these issues. But we can ask the people that we love and care about these questions and get it right as it pertains to how we relate to them. That was a great question. And I really love your explanation, even though it might not have like a very neat and tidy answer. I just think that it's important that we get more comfortable with understanding language and how it pertains to differences. So yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you too. You know, I always want to have like these easy answers. I really do. Like I always want to be able to give answers and to have concrete explanations. But I think sometimes what I'm learning is that it's not always about our answers, but really it's about the quality of our questions. Yeah, definitely. And I think our listeners ask so many excellent questions. But before we say goodbye, Darylise, let's make sure to do our Demystifying Diversity t-shirt giveaway. During each Q&A episode, we select a name at random from all the subscribers to our newsletter and all the callers and people who emailed with questions. And this week's name we picked is Casey Hammond. Yay! (laughs) So Casey emailed us a question this episode, and we'll be contacting Casey to arrange to send a free t-shirt and thank her for being a Demystifying Diversity podcast listener. So if you want to be eligible to win a t-shirt, Call, email, or subscribe to our email list. Subscribing is great because you'll keep up to date on episode and events. Yeah, just go to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and sign up. It only takes a few seconds. Congrats again, Casey, and thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who's listening. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, 
Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. Our Q&A episode song is Lacal by Speakeasy with permission from Blue Dot Studios. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join in on the conversation, visit demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. And if you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, please pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity by our very own Darylise Lyons. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Join us next week for our next episode, Survival After Genocide, a conversation about the enduring impact of the Holocaust and the human capacity for resilience. And in the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.